Earlier this week, we saw a monument of Western civilization burn furiously for hours, the Cathedral Notre Dame de Paris, the Cathedral of uh, Notre Dame in Paris that caught on fire. And amazingly, it didn't completely burn to the ground. It appears uh, that most of it was intact in store. Uh, you had burnt timber and most of the roof fell, but its structural integrity remained. And uh, there was a, a tinge of sadness when I saw it burning. Um, but at the same time, there was a certain kind of tragic comedy uh, feeling that I had, that there was uh, this tragic thing happening before me, but it was also something good. And what I mean by that is this burning of Notre Dame was this uh, metaphor of what's happening in the Western world. I mean, Notre Dame is a beautiful church and uh, France and the West has become unbelieving, has become sinful, has become apostate. And the burning of this church represents what's happening. It's a small scale um, metaphor for the West. And that's okay um, because God does that. God destroys his holy stuff, his holy people when they're not acting very holy. And so we can take comfort in this. We can um, uh, rejoice knowing that God is going to burn this stuff down to the ground and he's going to resurrect it and make something greater. And uh, one of the things that I noticed was the, the reactions from Christians uh, were, were varied. Um, of course, most Christians were saddened to see it and that was basically the extent, uh, isn't this tragic, isn't this sad? Yes, it was. Um, it's a beautiful church, and it is sad to see it go, especially with that much history um, behind it. Uh, but often with that response comes pray, pray for the people of France, pray for um, the Parisians, pray for their comfort, I mean, this follows any kind of tragedy we see. And I don't think this reflects adequately in what's going on. Uh, we should pray not just for their comfort, but for their repentance. I don't even know if we should pray for their comfort. We should pray for their repentance. They should be unsettled. They should be uncomfortable because God's trying to get their attention. The other response that I've seen is uh, from radical traditionalists who essentially want to reinstate another crusade, the Deus Volt crowd. Um, and this response is, is foolish in a different way um, by wanting to marshal military power to strike back at uh, the Muslim world is, um, I guess you could say, putting the cart before the horse in the sense that they also are not seeing the, the, the West's own sinfulness, that these things are a just reprisal from a just God. They simply want to uh, bear the sword without any kind of repentance. And so they could do that, but they're not going to have much success. And then others uh, have just outright condemned Christians for acknowledging this as a kind of judgment. And even if it was a non-intentional, if it was an accidental fire or whether it was intentional, I don't think it really matters. Why? 
because God is providential. <laughs> so even if it was an accident, God was superintending it. Even if it was purposeful, God is superintending that. And I, I saw a, a reformed man uh, who I respect otherwise, um, but I, I, I could not believe um, that he posted this. And uh, he said, I wish we could do this without the judgment, <laughs> which is a remarkable statement. I wish we could do this without the judgment. That statement totally encapsulates the Christian mind. This is a conservative Christian reformed man who essentially was one of the Israelites at Moab when there uh, was the sexual immorality going on and the Israelites are standing around crying and not doing anything. And, uh, and, and, and then when somebody comes along and says, we got to stop this and, and look at this judgment, look at these plagues. And then Phineas comes along and he stops it. Um, he, that is scandalous to these people to somebody for somebody to say, I wish we could do this. I wish we could just cry about Notre Dame burning to the ground and not mention that this is judgment, not mention that this is an act of God, that God is trying to get our attention. It's just amazing to me. It's just, it, it, it's, uh, it's barbaric and unrefined and, and, and insensitive to say that's judgment, but it is. Make no mistake about it. This is judgment. God is judging us. And so this reminds us of our own need to confess. Today is Easter, Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate in a uh, particular way uh, the single most Im important event in history, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the Messiah, the defeat of death, the confirmation of our faith, the first fruits of the hope that we have uh, who are in Christ. And as we read Genesis 9, we read a type of resurrection. And I'm not shoehorning, shoehorning this in here. Uh, this is something that is found all throughout the book of Genesis. Um, but here we see the resurrection of a new world after the flood, after the death of the flood, the baptism of the flood. We see the garden resurrected once again, a new life. And these shadows and types of new life in Christ are all throughout this book of beginnings. That's what Genesis is, the book of beginnings. And in it, we see these resurrections, these things which point to our eschatological end, a resurrected world. Isaiah says that God declares the end from the beginning. He says, remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So it's been God's goodwill and his pleasure to declare the end from the beginning. And we see that over and over and over again in Genesis. In the beginning... There was darkness, the world was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And what does God do? He says, let there be light. 
It's the very first thing that happens. Light shines in the darkness. And what does this do? This typifies Christ. Christ is light of lights, God of God. He is the light of all men, and he comes into a dark world. He brings the light to men. And then God creates Adam, who fails as the head of creation. And from that point, we have all of creation longing to be restored, longing to be redeemed by a second Adam. And as Paul says, uh, by Adam, death came to all men, and through Christ, life comes to all men who are in him. And, and God even, uh, uh, he pronounces this at the beginning um, in, uh, in, in, in after the fall. Does anybody know uh, what uh, I'm referring to here? The, it's the first time that the gospel is preached or spoken by God. What's the fancy theological name for it? I've spoken about it before. The Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, and what is that? He will bruise your heel and you will bruise his head. And what is that talking about? That's talking about Jesus and conquering the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus, and he is going to conquer the devil. It's the, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And so we have this resurrection idea even, even there at the beginning. Abel is murdered, and who is, how is Abel resurrected? Through Seth. Through Seth, exactly. Yes, Seth, that's what Seth's name means, to appoint, to put in place of Abel. He's a resurrected. God gave Eve Seth in place of Abel. So we have a resurrection there. And then Seth has Enosh, and then uh, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And this fizzles out too. This, uh, we have another fall. And uh, most likely this is, um, it's a very enigmatic passage, which we went through in Genesis 6, where the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took them to be wise. And uh, I think the most likely explanation of that is that the godly line of Seth, Enosh, is um, that I think they actually arranged these marriages as a um, bulwark against the violent and ungodly line of Cain. We know that the children of these marriages were warriors, they were giants, they were strong men, and, but we also know that these marriages were sinful, that the sons of God, these angels in heaven, left their station in heaven to have these illicit encounters with the daughters of men. And from them came the Nephilim. And I think that that's another way of them birthing an Ishmael, working out their salvation on their own. Instead of birthing an Ishmael, they birthed the Nephilim. <laughs> and then you have to fight these Nephilim later on, these giants later on. Um, and that gets into some difficult things, too. Uh, how did, did this happen again after the flood? Uh, it, it must have. It must have happened again because all of, all of or was the seed of the Nephilim part of uh, somebody in Noah's family? I, you know, it's just that kind of, that stuff gets difficult. But I think most likely it probably happened again. But God finds favor with Noah and Noah's family. And then he saves Noah through the flood, through the wiping out of the old creation 
and then we have this resurrected creation uh, when they come out of the ark. And that's where we are in our passage today and a little bit uh, when we went through Genesis 8. It's another new beginning. It's a resurrection. It's uh, God declaring the end from the beginning. And uh, uh, before we get into the passage, there's two more prominent resurrections in Genesis. Does uh, anybody have any idea what they are? One would be uh, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham takes Isaac to be a sacrifice, the akadah, the binding of Isaac as it's depicted in artwork. Um, and Abraham sacrifices Isaac, obviously. He doesn't literally sacrifice him, but he sacrifices him and receives him back from the dead. Am I speculating on that? It's not literally what happens, but in Hebrews... We said, uh, we're told, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that if God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham already knew that resurrection was possible. He knew what was promised to him, and he knew that God could transcend his own natural order and bring him back because God keeps his word. And so we have that there. Isaac carries the wood up to his sacrifice, just as Jesus carried the cross, the wood up to his sacrifice. And then there's one more. One more. Joseph? That, yeah, exactly. Yes, Joseph. And there's, there's, two, there's two kinds of deaths of Joseph in a way. One is, uh, well, his brothers are envious of him, just like the Pharisees were envious of Jesus, and they were his brothers. And they threw him into a pit, and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, Jesus was betrayed, and, uh, you know, he was in a, a, a tomb. And then also uh, Joseph is falsely accused and thrown into prison, which is another type of pit, another type of grave. And then he resurrects out of that and he becomes king of the world, pr the prince of Egypt, uh, the prince of the world, just as Jesus resurrects and he is now prince of the world, uh, sitting at the right hand of the father. And so... Um, so this book of beginnings uh, anticipates the end. It has the eschatological telos of the world um, baked into it in these, in these types and shadows, and uh, of which we see the first fruits of that in the Messiah, and that's what we are celebrating today. But we are in Genesis 9, and I want to back up a little bit to Genesis 8 because uh, that's, where God's, uh, that's where Noah comes off the ark. And what's the first thing that he does? Plants a garden. Well, in Genesis 8. Oh. I know that's not where we're at, but I just, I, I just want to kind of take this as, as, as the whole episode. He lets the animals go. Nope. He sacrifices. He worships God. He's, uh, 
And I think that that's important to note because um, what does sacrifice represent at this point? Yeah, and what does Christ represent? Why, why did Christ sacrifice himself? For sin. Exactly. So Noah found favor with God, and he was saved, but him sacrificing an animal, sacrificing these animals when he first got off the, the ark, I, I think indicates that Noah is saying, thank you, God, for your salvation, but also showing, I too am a sinner, but I'm a repentant sinner. I am one who wants to obey you. And I, I think that that's important to note, um, that it, uh, there's still, even with people, even with the obedient covenant keepers, um, that they still say, I deserve to die. I deserve to die for my sins. And so that's what the old covenant uh, sacrifices represented. They all pointed to Christ, and uh, Christ died uh, for our sins. And another thing to uh, mention about the end of Genesis 8 is um, he... Uh, He says, he'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, even though the imaginations of his heart are evil from his youth. Um, and I think that that phrase is another grace that God gives uh, to mankind at this point. And I'm kind of reading into it a little bit, but in Genesis 6, 5... Prior to the flood, we are told that the imaginations of the heart of men were only evil continually. So in, in, at the end of Genesis 8, it says, even though the imaginations of his heart are evil from his youth, but prior to that, it says they were evil continually. And I think that that probably indicated a kind of youthful rebellion that was perpetual in, man, in, in wicked men uh, their entire lives. And that kind of contributed to this chaotic world that we saw. But then when they get off of the ark, he says, I'm not going to curse the ground, even though men are evil from their youth, which I think indicates that even in unregenerate men, you see it in the natural world. There's a youthful kind of rebellion. And most people, not all, grow out of that. And I think that that's a grace from God that he somehow bestowed to humanity. But I just wanted to touch on a few of those things with Genesis 8 um, because it's, it's all the same episode. And uh, moving into Genesis 9, I, wanted, I want to touch on this idea of uh, this resurrected garden, this new garden. It's another garden of Eden. And what's the first clue that this is another garden of Eden? <laughs> yes, exactly. We see that exact same thing in Genesis 1. God blesses and he commands multiplication and fruitfulness and to fill the earth uh, to the fish, to the birds, and then also to Adam and Eve. Um, 
And so we have that repeated here with Noah and his sons and uh, the creatures. Now, uh, do they do this? They do. They, they're fruitful and they multiply. And we're told a little bit later on in this verse that they do populate the earth. However, they don't. And what, do I, what, what do I mean by that? They, they're actually disobedient to this at some point. Two chapters from now, what happens? The Tower of Babel. They congregate together. They don't fill the earth. And they actually kind of they, they say the opposite. In Genesis 11.4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, isn't that what God tells them to do? He says, go fill the earth. And they say, no, we're gonna, we are going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to congregate together. And we are uh, not going to scatter ourselves over the earth. I think there's a lot going on here, but I just only wanted to point that out because of this pattern of new creation fall. <laughs> new creation fall. I'm giving you this world. Just don't eat from that tree. Eats from the tree. I'm giving you this world. Just multiply and spread out over the world. Doesn't spread out over the world. And if you think about it, it probably would have been quite a fearful thing to spread out all over the world with your family. I mean, you're living in a time where you don't have the technology, even of, say, a Lewis and Clark. You are multiplying alongside of animals like bears and wolves and alligators. They're multiplying as well. And you're having to move into uncharted terrain. I mean, these are, these are fearful things if you really immerse yourself in that environment. And God says, go. <laughs> and, and what else does he say in this passage? He, he actually puts fear on the animals. He says, I've given them into your hand. Mm. So he promises them, these are yours. You have victory here. Which is, I think... It's a training wheels lesson that God was giving to an immature but maturing humanity, which we see progress as we go through redemptive history. And in particularly that phrase, I've given them into your hand. After Abram defeats the kings who have allied themselves um, and captured his uh, nephew Lot, um, Melchizedek comes out in Genesis 14. Uh, me, yeah, uh, the, the, the king of righteousness, Melachi Zedek of Salem, the, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, that's what his name means. Jesus, <laughs> basically. And he says, blessed, he gives them wine and bread and he says blessed be abram by god most high creator of heaven and earth and praise be to god most high who delivered your enemies into your hand i just want to draw attention to that he's he, melchizedek says god gave these into your hand 
In Exodus 23.1, God says to the children of Israel, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And when Joshua is giving orders to his men in Joshua 10, he says, Pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 9. God has given the animals into, your, into their hand. Right there in verse 2, they are given into your hand. So I think it's, uh, it's the animals represent men here, basically. He's training men uh, and maturing them. He's, he's basically saying, battle these animals. You have to face your fear. You have to exercise violence. But I've already promised you them. I've put fear into them. And you're to exercise dominion over them. God is bringing faithful mankind into a fuller dominion over creation which culminates in what it culminates in our savior saying go out into all the world baptizing the nations teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you we've been cultivated to do this for thousands of years we are after all fishers of men Right? Again, another correlation. Men, animals. Go out, catch fish, gut them, <laughs> eat them. <laughs> and in verse 2 through 7, uh, we have this idea continuing, uh, this maturation of mankind. God is investing man with more authority after Noah had exercised faithfulness. And that's what happens when you are obedient to God. God will invest you with more responsibilities. He will delegate things to you. He will give you more authority. But maturation takes time. Maturation uh, looks like exercising wisdom. It looks like the ability to stand firm, the ability to show mercy. Uh, all of these things take time. Time is the crock pot for mature believers, for making mature believers. And I think one of those things, uh, it's not exactly the same, but he doesn't allow mankind to eat animals right away. He gives them... Uh, plants to eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I think there's a similar thing going on here where uh, they were not allowed to eat animals um, for a time and that was because of uh, them being brought into maturity they exercise uh, obedience Noah exercises obedience in uh, in even his dietary habits um, and then they come out of that and he's allowed to eat meat. And I, the only thing I'm doing here is just comparing this permission to eat meat with maturity. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, uh, Paul says, uh, it's not meat, but it's solid food. He says, and I, brethren, uh, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. 
For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So Paul is associating uh, spiritual immaturity with uh, uh, eating uh, softer types of food, milk, and then they're able to eat solid foods once they're spiritually mature. Uh, Hebrews 5 says a similar thing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So again, the spiritually immature, they only have milk. Spiritually mature are able to take solid food, this association going on again. Prior to the flood, the antediluvian world, everyone's a vegetarian. They can only eat vegetables and perhaps animal byproducts like milk. After the flood, they're able to eat more solid food. And Paul in Romans, this will just be the last one, he says, uh, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not dispute, uh, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Well, that's the antediluvian world. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So I only point this out. Obviously, people are permitted to abstain from foods and only be vegetarians and vegans. But, God, but Paul does say that those who do such things are, are the weaker brethren. And that's fine. There's another, they're allowed to eat the solid food. They're allowed to eat um, meat, but there's, the, there's a proviso and there's a, uh, there's a restriction associated with it. What is that? No blood. Right, exactly. Can't have blood. And so I think what's going on here, this um, restriction of eating uh, or drinking the blood is continued uh, in the Levitical laws. Um, it's established again at the Council of Jerusalem uh, in Acts, where they come together and they say, you know, how, what are the Gentiles supposed to follow? Well, that's one of them. That's one of the things that they say, you know, they can't, don't, don't drink the blood. Um, and uh, we're told because that's the life. Life and blood are associated to, with each other. And I, I'm not quite sure everything that's going on there, but what I think it's mainly pointing at is the blood of Christ. In his blood, we are not only permitted, but commanded to drink and to be covered in, um, not only sacramentally, but uh, in our lives, in our confessions, in our faith, in our obedience. Um, and Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so there's kind of this inverse through uh, redemptive history of don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood. Only the pagans drink the blood. And then Jesus comes along and he says, drink my blood. <laughs> so there's, I think there's a connection there. Uh, lastly, um, in this, uh, in what, what God is, uh, stating here with this Noahic covenant, uh, he endows men as ministers of wrath. He delegates his, uh, 
avenging acts to him, to men. Um, they are they are delegated the authority to act as ministers of vengeance to kill men and animals when they kill men. So prior to the flood, uh, you have Cain killing Abel, and God actually puts a mark on Cain and says, uh, nobody can avenge Abel's blood. And uh, that world is a Anabaptist paradise because nobody is allowed to kill anybody. The righteous are not allowed to avenge the blood of murderers. Uh, or when murderers kill, they're not allowed to avenge the blood of their victims. So it's a, it's a pacifist paradise because nobody is allowed, no, none of the righteous are allowed to use their swords yet. And what does that world look like? It's a world that descends into absolute chaos and violence. And God is gracious here by instituting governments, essentially, by giving men, he says, it is now lawful for you to kill men who kill other men and to kill animals who kill other men. And this, again, is God bringing men up in the faith, investing them with more authority, delegating God's acts to men. And I think you even see this um, progress even in, in uh, redemptive history in many ways. But one example would be Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. You have wicked men doing wicked things. And the judgment there is by God. It's a supernatural kind of judgment by God with uh, the, the sulfur and the brimstone. Uh, and you could possibly say that it was mediated by the angels who came and rescued Lot, that perhaps they brought that judgment. But either way, it wasn't men bringing that judgment. But then you go to Judges 19, which is in, where Gibeah, which is inhabited by the Benjamites, becomes another Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's almost the exact same episode where you have righteous men come to a, uh, a house in that town and they want to have carnal relations with him. And uh, they instead they rape the, uh, the concubine, the Levite's concubine. And, and then God sends... Uh, sulfur and brimstone on Gibeah, right? No, no, that's not what happens. What happens? What's the judgment on them? It's exercised by the tribes of Israel. Yeah. And so I think that that's another thing of God investing men with more authority to exercise judgment in a more, I guess you could say, mediatorial way, direct way. And why, what is the reason given for why uh, this vengeance is permitted? If, if, somebody, if somebody kills a man, that man needs to die. Why is that? Because the, man, because the man they killed was made in the image of God. That's what we're told in Genesis. That's what we're told here in this passage. And so there's the, that idea, we are made in the image of God, and so... There's a certain kind of, there's consequences when you mess with that. <laughs> there's consequences when you kill that, when you strike at that. And, uh, and that is, uh, 
that is a kind of a foundational idea in the Christian West, in the post-Christian West, that we're made in the image of God, so we have kind of inherent dignity. You could argue that a lot of our rights come from this idea and things like this. And obviously that's been abused and, uh, and used for all kinds of perverted um, ideas, especially, and that's in the post-Christian world we live in. Essentially, all the insanity that we see are basically perversions of Christian truths. <laughs> um, but this one in particular, these immigrants are made in the image of God and they have inherent dignity. These hostile immigrants are made in the image of God and they have inherent dignity. Therefore, import them all to America. These homosexuals are made in the image of God and they have inherent dignity. Therefore, legalize sodomy. I mean, this kind of reasoning is, is used a lot. Um, particularly among liberal Christians. Everybody has dignity and they're made in the image of God. Therefore, whatever liberal degenerate policy I, I want to happen should happen. But the reason, but the, but the purpose of God saying this wasn't for those things. It was, it was for um, curtailing violence to the institution of, of governments which uh, can, can be ministers of wrath for people who murder. Okay, uh, moving on to verses 8 through 11. And verses 12 through 17. Covenant and signs. God states uh, that he's making this covenant. It's the first time the term covenant is used, berit. Um, even though uh, I don't think it's the first covenant in the Bible, we don't necessarily need the word covenant to know that there are covenants in place. For example, the marriage between uh, Adam and Eve. Malachi says that marriage is a covenant, and the word covenant is not used with Adam and Eve, but Jesus treats it as a marriage. Therefore, we can assume that there's covenants there. I think that God is in covenant with Adam as well. There's stipulations with that relationship. There's blessings and cursings to it. And we see a similar thing here, um, that God promises never to destroy the earth again with a flood. And um, that is uh, essentially what's going on. Uh, and instead, what God has done is he, he's de he destroys the earth through the floods of baptism. He destroys the old creature in baptism and brings a new creation out of that. And then we see that God associates a sign with these promises, with this covenant that he makes with Noah and with mankind. And what is that sign? It's a a rainbow, a bow. Uh, the word there, uh, I can't remember off the top, I think it's keresh, um, but that word there is bow. It's just, it's the same word used for a hunting bow, a bow that a warrior would use. So God, as this hunter, as this, uh, uh, this one who just exercised um, releasing death on the earth, has hung up his bow in the sky, hung up his war bow, in the sky. And uh, I just wanted to point that out that covenants have signs associated with them. They have symbols associated with them. Um, that symbolism is important and it reminds God of certain things. Uh, when we celebrate the Eucharist, uh, we remind God of Jesus's death. We say, we, we show forth his death until he comes again. And who are we showing it forth to? It's not primarily to ourselves, it's to God. God says that the rainbow reminds him 
that he's not going to do it again. It's a bizarre thing, but it's all throughout Scripture. The psalmist reminds God's, God of things that he's done. And that's what these symbolisms uh, do. The, when women wear veils on their head, what does that do? It reminds angels who are watching who their covering is. Uh, when the blood is put over the doorposts in Egypt, it reminds the angel of death. That, I don't touch that. I can't touch that. I can't touch the firstborn there. Um, in Genesis 31, Laban and Jacob, they make a covenant together regarding Laban's daughters and property boundaries. Um, they explicitly say it. Let's say, let's make a covenant together. And in that passage, they erect a pillar and they put a pile of stones there. And they say, uh, let this be a witness between you and I and between us and God. And they even call the pile of stones a heap of witness. And so it's a visual symbol of the covenant that they made with each other. And we still do this today. We still use rocks to symbolize covenants. What's a, what's a, a covenant that we use a rock as a symbol of? A wedding ring. Exactly. Wedding ring. We, uh, men give women a shiny rock to symbolize their uh, covenant of marriage. Another visible uh, sign associated with the covenant is circumcision, which was given to um, Israelite children when they were old enough to make a personal decision to follow Yahweh God or not. I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. They were given to all the children from birth, but it was a reminder of not their faith. That's not what Paul says. The Bible says, the Bible says, Paul says, speaking of Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believed. So circumcision was a sign of Abraham's faith, which all of his children were to emulate, just as baptism is the sign of Jesus's faith, just as all of his children are supposed to emulate. Um, so yeah, baptism, circumcision, Rocks, rainbows, the Eucharist, these are all signs of the covenant. Uh, we are people of the word, but we are also people of symbols. God thinks symbols are important, and so should we. You look at a rainbow, you see the Noahic covenant. You look at a wedding diamond, you see a marriage covenant. You look at bread and wine, you see the new covenant. And so uh, getting into the last uh, section here, verses 18 through 19. There's, the whole world comes from these three sons, right? They populate the whole earth, we're told. And as I said before, we could take this to mean that uh, there was an, an immediate population and then maybe they backtracked to do the Tower of Babel or maybe... This statement here in chapter 9 is saying that they eventually populated the whole earth after the Tower of Babel, after God confused them, and then they populated the whole earth. I'm not totally sure. It, it doesn't really matter, um, but uh, it could be, you can harmonize it one of those two ways. And also of note, traditionally, um, and we see this in Josephus uh, especially, and there's other things uh, too, but uh, traditionally, it's believed that Shem's children populate Asia, 
Japheth populates Europe and Ham populates Africa. Um, one of the titans in Greek mythology is named Japheth. It's a, the Greek derivative, derivative is uh, uh, Iapetus or Japetus. Um, and he's the, uh, the uh, progenitor of mankind. And, um, and Josephus associates him with uh, the European people. And he also associates Ham with the African people. Um, and then obviously Shem, from Shem comes Aber, who is the Hebrews. And from Aber, we get Abraham. And from Abraham, we get Isaac, Jacob, and we get the Israelites. So uh, there's definitely that. Um, I mean, obviously, they're all in that area. But um, that's where we get the, the Shem. We get the Semitic people. Um, we hear the word Semitic when people say anti-Semitic. And they're talking about people who are against Jews. And then you have um, yeah, Ham associated with Africa. The Bible itself refers to Egypt as the land of Ham several times in the Psalms and then also in 1 Chronicles 440 or some variation thereof, the tents of Ham or something like this down in Africa. So there's lots of controversy around that thesis, but I think it's, I think it's probably true. Okay, the very last section, very last section here, the sin of Ham. It says uh, Noah became a farmer, which really is not a, a it's, I think it's fine. He was a farmer, but literally uh, he's an ish ha'adamah, a man of the ground, a man of the soil. Uh, where, who else was like that? Adam. Adam was a man of the ground. Uh, he was a man of the soil, a man made of the soil. Um, obviously, Noah wasn't made of the soil in the same way that Adam was, but uh, he began to be a gardener in the same way that Adam was. He plants a vineyard and he tends to it and he eats the fruit thereof. He drinks it. He becomes drunk. And, uh, and then there's another fall. Ham comes in, sees his nakedness, tells his brother. Noah wakes up, cursed Canaan. And this passage is, uh, it's tricky. It's, uh, we're not, it's not laid out exactly what's going on. However, let's go through a few of the interpretations that have been offered. And then uh, I'll give uh, a contribution that I think helps to kind of bring things into more clarity. If, uh, if we follow the idea of this resurrected garden and that Noah is a type of Adam, perhaps Noah, like Adam, fails to protect his wife here. Adam sinned by letting his guard down, letting his wife be persuaded, be invaded by the serpent and eat the forbidden fruit. And we could possibly see that Noah sins by relaxing his guard not being sober and vigilant enough to protect his wife from this new serpent who is Ham, and perhaps Ham uh, had sexual relations with Noah's wife, with his mother. And that sounds kind of strange, but you see the parallels there with the garden, and you also see that this could be a kind of rebellion of seizing Noah's authority. And there's also 
this idea of seeing Noah's nakedness, well, in Leviticus, when you commit incest, you see the nakedness, not of the person that you slept with, but of the person that they are one flesh with. If you sleep with your mother, you reveal your father's nakedness. You see your father's nakedness. And so perhaps that's what that phrase means in Genesis 9 when he sees Noah's nakedness. And we see a similar thing with sons in rebellion throughout the Bible. Absalom sleeps with his father's wives in front of all of Israel, in front of his brothers, right? And then Paul has to deal with the same thing in Corinth. And so you see a similar pattern throughout Scripture. It's a possibility. We don't really know. Or maybe he committed some kind of sexual immorality with Noah himself. After all, Lot's daughters committed sexual immorality with their father when he got drunk. So maybe it was a similar thing. And this could also explain the severity of judgment that Noah has on Ham. Or maybe Ham castrated his father. This is a, an option by uh, rabbinic Judaism. And it could also explain the severity of the nature of cursing Canaan. Or maybe, and I think that there's some legitimacy to this one, as one commentator says, Ham took Noah's garment of authority, his robe of authority. Joseph was favored by his father. Noah was favored by God the Father. And perhaps uh, just as uh, uh, Joseph's brothers sought to overthrow Joseph's authority, perhaps Ham was seeking out some kind of rebellion here, some kind of uh, coup to overthrow his father's authority, seizing something that was forbidden to him to continue the garden motif before his time and thereby bringing a curse on his children because of it. Uh, after all, it doesn't appear that Noah is reproved for being drunk or even being naked. I mean, there's nothing really weird about being naked in your own room. There's nothing weird about being naked in your own tent. Um, so that's a possibility. But I'm not totally sure with all of these things. But I will offer to you what I think uh, is probably the closest thing to what's going on here. And that is this. Let's just take everything at face value. And let's also assume that Noah is in sin. Let's assume that his drunkenness and his nakedness is sin. Nakedness is associated with sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And Ham's looking on his father's nakedness and telling his brothers is also his sin. That's it. Let's just take that as face value. That's what the passage tells us. Let's just say that that's the sin. If we assume these things... I think that Jesus' teachings in Matthew 18 give us the answer to why he was cursed so severely. And what is that? Well, it's how to deal with a brother in sin. If a brother sins against you, Jesus says, go to him privately and essentially restore him, reprove him. If he repents, you've restored your brother. You've won him and you keep that between you and him. And then if he doesn't repent, you take it to other people. Ham doesn't do this. Ham does not restore his brother in sin, his father, literally, 
but he doesn't restore his father's sin in sin. He goes to other people. He goes to his brothers. And we don't know what the reasons are, but perhaps they were to exploit that in some kind of way. Hey, come look at our father. His guard is down. He's naked. And perhaps that's what Ham, that's, perhaps that's what's going on here. That this action by Ham is juxtaposed to the actions of Japheth and Shem, who don't even look at their father's nakedness. They walk in backwards and they restore him by putting a garment over him. And the garment represents forgiveness. It represents being uh, restored in the Lord, being covered, your sins being covered. And that's a good thing. It represents ultimately Christ's sacrifice for us in our say our redemption in the Lord. Psalm 132 5 says, let your priest be clothed in righteousness. Isaiah 61 10 says, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Revelation 19.8 says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so when Ham failed to do this to his father to cover his nakedness and to even tell it to other people, he was judged harshly. His child Canaan and Canaan's descendants were cursed to be what? To be slaves to his brother. And that principle is profoundly true. When you are rebellious to the things of God, you will be a slave. Rebellion always breeds slaves. And this is what we see in our churches. That's what we see in our culture. Our churches are filled with men committing the sin of Ham. Men who see their family members in sin and they refuse to cover their sins. They see their family members in sin and they refuse to restore them. Instead, they go and tell others about it for all the wrong reasons. And they have their reward, which is cursed children, homosexual children, children with disabilities and diseases and demons, apostate children. They have reaped their reward, just like Ham did. They have sown their sin and it has returned to them in full. So let us not be like Ham. Let us bless our children by honoring our father. Let us bless our children by restoring our family members who are in sin. Bless our children by covering that nakedness instead of exploiting it. Our families are filled with naked, drunk Noahs, good men who are in sin, good men who have divorced and remarried, contrary to the dominical commands, good men who have stood by and done nothing, to faithfully restore these men. And so we have cursed children in a cursed society, which is what the, re the West is right now. God has shown us the way of life by his son, so let's walk that narrow path, if by any means we might attain salvation for ourselves and for the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for uh, showing us uh, your resurrection uh, from the tomb for showing us these things in types and shadows, even uh, from the beginning of time in this, uh, even in this episode of Noah and his sons. We praise you for being merciful to us, for providing uh, a way of escape, for providing salvation, for clothing us in righteousness. 
for teaching us your ways. Uh, help us to walk in them. Help us to hear your word, not to harden our hearts or to stiffen our necks, but to receive gladly the things that you have spoken to us today. Uh, we praise you and we thank you. Amen. The charge is this. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, wash your wife in the word, hide the law in your heart so that you do not sin against your creator, fill the earth with your family who will do likewise. If you are a eunuch, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth by begetting children of the gospel, by evangelizing the unbeliever, by discipling the convert. Both the celibate and the married are gifts to the church and contribute to being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth with their children. Get drunk. Get drunk on the new covenant wine. Be drunk in the spirit, as Paul says. Be intoxicated with the goodness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't be like Ham. Be like Japheth. Be like Sham. Restore a brother in sin. Win him over. Follow how Jesus tells us to deal with sin in Matthew 18 for the sake of your children, for the sake of future generations, for the sake of our culture and our politics. This is how we participate in God's redemption of the world. This is resurrection life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.